Hello, everybody. Welcome to Where Work Meets Life. I'm Dr. Laura, and I'm delighted today to bring you a topic that I'm eager to learn more about, disarming the narcissist at work. So, Wendy Beharry, uh, I can't think of um, someone who has more expertise uh, than she does in terms of practicing and doing therapy to help narcissists as well as the people in their lives. She spent the last 30 years of her career uh, working with narcissists, whether it's in personal relationships, love relationships, families, and organizations, with organizations being our main focus today. I've experienced narcissists personally in my life, in my various roles, even in the charity and volunteer work I've done in the past. Narcissists have popped up where I've least expected it. So the topic of dealing with the self-absorbed at work and in workplaces, I think is very, very important. And learning how to navigate this. Wendy comes with a best-selling book, which is now in a third edition, I believe, Disarming the Narcissist, uh, and it's translated into 15 languages. I got my hand on this book. It's actually on my e-reader. I'm waiting for my hard copy because I think this book can help many, many people. And it, it talks about schemas that we all come with from our childhood. Um, and Wendy brings a lot of expertise on schema therapy. She actually found of the Institutes for Schema Therapy in New Jersey, New York, and D.C. Um, and beyond that, uh, her private practice is thriving, helping a lot of difficult people um, and those who are impacted by them. Welcome to Where Work Meets Life, Wendy. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for that lovely introduction. It's so nice to be with you. Well, it's my pleasure to be talking to someone who's done as much and contributed to the world in the way that you have. So tell us a little more about yourself for our listeners and what led you to specialize in narcissism. Yeah, there's the question, right? <laughs> People thinking, what's wrong with Wendy Beharry that she would choose this as an area of expertise? Um, I didn't actually choose it. I think that I'm a person who has always been incredibly curious, and certainly as a therapist, that kind of comes with our package, right? To be curious, to be open, to be learning. Well, I was learning a lot about myself when I met probably my first, second, and third narcissistic client and finding this pattern in me where I was getting highly triggered and reacting in ways that were a bit surprising to me, sort of watching myself from the outside looking in saying, why are you apologizing? You didn't do anything wrong. Why are you giving in? Why are you letting him get away with this? Why aren't you standing up for yourself and setting limits? And I was fascinated by my own reaction, my own activation, and began to explore at the time, working with Jeffrey Young, who's the founder of Schema Therapy. We began looking at the model which was already being designed to deal with other difficult personality types. And we started thinking about applications for dealing with issues of narcissism. And so began the journey into cultivating this expertise. Wonderful. So it's almost like this topic chose you based on your curiosity and, and the types of people that were coming into your life as clients. 
So let's hear about what is narcissism, because I think it's used a lot out there these days. And I get worried about trying to diagnose people ourselves. I think having a label on someone can be very dangerous. So I think I want to hear from you on that, on what is narcissism? How do we diagnose it? And what percent of people have narcissistic personalities, Wendy? Mm. Yeah, this is a hot topic, Laura. You're right. It it's become what I call now kitchen table language. It's no longer limited to the lexicon of psychotherapists, psychologists, psychiatrists. It's now landed on kitchen tables in everyday life. It's all over the news. It's really evolved since the first edition of my book when there were a handful of books for the general public. And now there are thousands of books out there on this subject. And sadly, there's a lot of myths so I'm glad you asked the question about what it is and let's say what it isn't because um, there's a lot of misrepresentation and misunderstanding. There is a lot of narcissism, I think, but I don't know that it's any more than it's ever been. The researchers have different thoughts about that. But narcissism is different than what we think of as someone who's a psychopath or a sociopath. And there's a lot on the internet that's calling out narcissists when in fact they're talking about more severe over the end of the spectrum types of personalities. When I, when you think of a narcissistic individual, you think of someone who has traits where they can become highly self-absorbed, you know, highly involved in their own self-worth, so approval seeking, recognition seeking, status seeking, they can be incredibly charming, arrogant, entitled, um, lacking in empathy or appreciation for the impact of their behaviors on others, unremorseful for acts that are hurtful because they live in this world that's just filled with toxic shame. So they become incapacitated when it comes to true empathy and remorse. Um, they can be controlling and domineering and at the more severe end of the spectrum, aggressive and abusive. That's one form. We have other forms that still carry this approval-seeking trait, but they are more covert. And so the covert narcissist, which is also getting a lot of popular attention these days, is the one who tends to be more victim-like. I call them the super sufferers or the virtuous victims, the one whose suffering is greater than yours or mine. We could never really understand what it's like to be them. And it's not a true vulnerability, even though it can look like one. It's really another way of gaining approval for being a martyr, basically. But the one thread you know, that ties it all together when we think of narcissists is this sense of super self-absorbed energy. And so when you're in a relationship with them, regardless of what type of relationship, there is this tendency to feel as if you're being erased. You know, that you're basically kind of holding up the spotlight or the mirror so that they can better see their reflection. Right. And that covert narcissist, I think, is, is the one that can come into your life easier without as many warning signs or red flags, I like to call them. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. Because they can appear to be at first glance a little bit more vulnerable or just um, self-effacing, you know, well, you know, I don't like to brag about these things. And well, you know, I, I feel a little funny saying this, but, you know, so you get this sense that there is a kind of inhibition and yet it's right there, you know, behind the curtain. 
even the overt narcissist, the more grandiose type that can be larger than life, um, at again, at first glance, they too can kind of capture us, pull us under their spell. They can be charming. They can be very uh, heroic. They can be incredibly witty and engaging and smart and distracting. They are good in courtship. They're very good at knowing how to court you for whether it's a romantic relationship or a job or some other kind of relationship, they know how to court you. They can figure out how to get what they want when they want it. That really resonates, that that courtship. And I think that can apply to work and, and to romantic relationships. So can certain parts of narcissism be helpful, like at work? So let's think about at work and in leadership. And, and when does it become harmful? Mm, this is a great question. Um, in leadership, and we've, I've done some looking at this topic um, and talking about it recently. Because the narcissist is so prone towards performance, so much of their early experience is often about the imbalance between attention to connecting with others and attention to performing and competing, ambition, drive, extraordinariness. And so because, and, and usually they're selected. So there's a child who's been selected because they show some keen capacity to excel in some area, whether it's athletic, scholarly, in some way. And so this child who now has this enormous amount of expectation placed upon them in many cases, and has this kind of innate ability, has low frustration tolerance. So in other words, they can get away with temper tantruming because they are, they're providing the goods by being the very special one, the one who achieves, the one who brings a lot of attention. But because they're sort of living in this super autonomous way of being, like, I don't need anybody, I'm the master of the universe, it's not surprising that many of them will end up in professional positions and positions of leadership in companies, because they are so driven. There is no such thing as limits when it comes to work standards, and they will drive their way to the top. So there are positives in that, because they can, they can be excellent in their thinking and crafting and cultivating of ideas and services and products. The danger is that they don't have an off switch for that. They're, so their expectations then get imposed upon others. Their incapacity for interpersonal relationships, for appreciation of other people's feelings, for even taking a breath so others can speak. You know when you're in the presence of one of these types, especially if it's your boss, because they ask you a question, but they don't listen to the answer. They ask you a question, they don't let you speak. They interrupt you and cut you off. They're cynical, they're critical, they're quick. They're not thoughtful in the area of emotional engagement or intimacy. Mm-hmm. They, they, they don't truly listen. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, and, and I think they, because they don't have that natural empathy, they, they don't care as much about stepping over people to get what they want, right? Undermining them, climbing the ladder um, in highly political ways, manipulating situations. Yeah, you've got it. That's exactly right. And, I, and it's not that they can't develop a capacity for empathy. I know as a therapist who's worked with narcissistic men and many of them being 
highly successful people in there. Not all of them, but most of them. Um, and they come in unapologetic for that. Not that they should be apologetic for being successful, but unapologetic for even the people who they've stepped on along the way. There's just this lack of appreciation for what it feels like to be on the other side of that relationship. And until they can really dive deep into the therapeutic work to take a look at what stirs inside of them, which is often a lot of loneliness and shame and actually, believe it or not, big fat insecurity, until they can really get a grasp of that vulnerable part of themselves and see it and know it and make sense out of it, it's pretty hard for them to see it in others because they're always up against this idea of being the bad guy. And so you get denial and defense and disparaging, devaluing, disconnecting, all those D words, right? That's what usually happens. Absolutely. <laughs> I've, I've experienced that for sure in, in various uh, work and volunteer endeavors. And I noticed you said men, but funny enough, some of them I've experienced in, over the course of my career have been women. So what, what percent of narcissism do you see more in male versus female? Yeah, this is a question that comes up frequently, and it's important because I think, you know, once upon a time, the literature would suggest that 75% of people with narcissistic personality disorder or narcissistic traits even were men. But I think that's that statistic is changing as we're recognizing that there's no shortage of women who occupy this problematic personality as well. There are plenty of divas who can give their male counterparts a run. And there's also the different form, you know, that covert form that will show up typically in women who are, again, what I call these virtuous victims. You know, they, they, they make their identity, they form an identity and a super special one based on their ultra generosity and giving and suffering. And so it may come out just slightly different, or it may show up in the other way that I just described that you were resonating with, Laura. So I think there's, I, I don't know that it's a 50-50. I don't really know what the number is in terms of percentages, but I think there's a good deal of women out there who take that space. Thank you. No, that's that's really good to know. And I think you did a great job um, in your book, Disarming the Narcissist, on looking at those different schemas of how why narcissists come across the way they do and what's going on inside of them. Um, and you have a whole number of schemas in there. And what I really like too about the book is the stories you include um, in the book. So can you tell us a little bit more about the book and who would benefit from reading it and how they can get their hands on it? Mm, yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. My book, you know, when I first wrote this book, it was inspired by many of my clients who were living with dealing with narcissistic others and struggling, either struggling because they were in situations where they just couldn't leave, you know, they couldn't leave for financial reasons, whether it was a job or a marriage, they couldn't leave because of their children, because there was fear about losing their supervisory role when the children were in the custody of the narcissist who was mm, kind of devil may care, you know, driving under the influence, not using seatbelts, not really following the rules. And so they felt they really had no choice. There were those who were also feeling a great deal of 
sadness, sorrow, grief, not quite ready yet to call it quits and looking for a way to see if there could be hope, if there could be leverage, if there could be ways of influencing their partners to get help. So my book was originally targeted for this audience. It still is, I mean, in many ways, although therapists have also found it helpful because I do go through the conceptual framework of narcissism and the people that are impacted and talk about schemas, these traits, these emotional traits. And um, actually the narcissists themselves find it helpful reading this book. My book is one of only a few that actually does say there is hope. <laughs> it's not that I feel sorry for narcissists because I get accused of that sometimes. I don't feel sorry for the narcissism that hurts others. I feel empathy, meaning I understand, I make sense out of why it's happening so that I can hold them accountable in order to make the necessary changes. I think it's the best way that we can hold someone accountable is to install some empathy. But I am compassionate to the wounded child in the narrative that's being shared with me. That's my job as a therapist and it's one that becomes a unique privilege when we can actually foster transformation. So my book has uh, it has a quality of not saying things like narcissists are devils and demons and Satan and run for your life. It says it's hard and there are conditions under which it's unsafe and one must get out and here's maybe how to plan your departure. But it also talks about the possibilities for how you might be able to influence someone to get the help that they need and how to kind of liberate yourself from the self-blame and the self-doubt that one often carries when they're living with a narcissist and dealing with a narcissist. Really, really good point. And over the course of my career, one of my specialties has been career psychology. And when someone comes for career counseling, for example, it's usually, is it is it the wrong career fit or is it the wrong boss you're working for or is it the wrong organization but the right industry? Um, so there's a lot of these factors to separate and I've heard a, a number of situations where it is the supervisor and I hear narcissistic type type traits. And for people in those situations, is, is there hope to better navigate, say, a boss with narcissistic tendencies or should they just run for the hills? <laughs> you know, it's it's incredibly difficult. I think it's one of the toughest situations is when you're working with or for someone like this, especially if it's your boss or supervisor. Because you may just not have, you know, the luxury of just leaving or the ease of transitioning into a, a whole new job. If you can, it may be the, the best way. But for most people, that isn't the case. And so I, I guide them, as you probably do too, Laura, with strategies like set limits as much as you can. Try to limit your exposure. You know, keep yourself tucked away from the narcissist in as much as you can. Don't be trying to win them over. It's really a lost cause. Um, but what might be helpful in some cases is what I call the when all else fails strategy or the vomit bucket technique. This is a, I call it that because it has a nauseating quality to it. And it means that you find narcissists really thrive on this kind of supply, right, to their ego. So on the one hand, this may sound like I'm contradicting myself, you're not really trying to win their favor, but you may be providing them with a sense of approval, admiration, 
a compliment, a recognition of some sort in order to get them to do the right thing. So an example of that, I had a narcissistic boss at one time. And I remember at the time I was a single parent. I was juggling a lot and I was trying to attend one of my daughter's school functions. And I had learned the hard way that to just ask or state that I need this time off for my child would be received with a reply like, oh, I guess I know where your priorities are. And whoa, that was scary and upsetting and disturbing. And I expected I would have so much more support from this woman who was also a single parent. So I sort of gathered myself, and this was just pure luck because I was not yet really the expert in narcissism at this point. But I went to her and I tried something else. And with full honesty, because she was brilliant and she was an amazing woman in terms of what she could do. She just wasn't such a great leader. But I said to her, I don't know how you do it. And I, I really don't know how you balance it all. I don't know how you juggle it. I don't know how you manage, you know, the home and the work and you have so much that you carry. And I'm really impressed and I need to learn from you. And she's looking at me, you know, I can see she's sort of perking up, but she's getting impatient with where I'm going. And I said, I just don't know what to do. What would you do? if your daughter has this recital, whatever it was, and you know, and you've still got a couple hours on the calendar tonight for clients. I don't have any clients, but I do, I am supposed to be here until whatever, eight o'clock. And she says, well, you go to that recital. And I say, wow, really? Oh boy, thank you. Oh, of course. Oh, that's great. That's so helpful. Thank you. Right. All right. You know, it's it's a little tedious. It's a little over the top, but I'm trying to get her to do the right thing. I already did the right thing. I cleared my calendar. I made sure there was coverage. I covered myself and I'm trying to be a good mom at the same time. Now, how do I get her to do the right thing? I've got to make her a superhero. She needs to feel like a mentor. She needs to feel like she's my role model. And so I added some kernels of truth. They were truths. And I ask her, even though I don't really need her to guide me, but I need her to do the right thing. And it happens. So there's lots of different examples of how we can do that to get the narcissist to actually do the right thing. You know, when it comes to them being critical in front of people or being stubborn or, or, or being interruptive when you're speaking, there's a lot of strategies. And I share some of those in my book as well. Wonderful. So, so really appealing to their ego. And that, I mean, that is, is a, a clever way around it. Although I can see what you mean about the throw up or puke factor <laughs> in it. Um, and what about an approach of trying to kill them with kindness, right? So being kind, um, being empathetic, does, does that work or not as much as the killing with kindness? Not so much. Well, because again, this is a discomfort zone for them. You can, if you're admiring them, you know, you're complimenting them. That's okay to a point, but narcissists are highly suspicious of people who are caring or kind. They're just not used to it. They're used to being kind of used and manipulated. Remember, they were the child who was chosen with great expectations placed upon them in most cases. They were told that they were weak when they showed emotion. They were told that the that emotions and um, those kinds of natural human exchanges were sort of not valuable 
kind of a waste of time. And so when you show up in that way with your kindness and your warmth and your gentleness, you're definitely going to percolate some longings in them because these are unmet needs, but they're highly suspicious. And if you're not the therapist, then you're just running yourself into trouble. They will get annoyed. They may even get angry. Um, they may feel manipulated by you because of that suspiciousness. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'm hearing boundaries, set really clear boundaries, keep your distance, um, especially if they're not your boss. Tougher if it's your boss, but if it's a peer, a colleague, etc., keep your distance. Yeah. And as much as you can, you know, to try, it's not always so easy, but in as much as you can, it, your distance might also just be the way you're speaking, you know, that you're not constantly as trying to win them over or engaging um, or making sure that there are other people in your in close proximity so that you're not you know captured in that solo relationship with them which can be so overwhelming wonderful so i think you've shared a lot of really important nuggets we've talked about the corporate ladder we've talked about how they show up in organizations as one's boss. Uh, you've talked about narcissism in general and your book. Um, and we'll definitely include the, the links to Disarming the Narcissist, where to order it in our show notes, as well as the blog that I will publish about this great episode and topic. So I want to thank you very much, Wendy, for sharing uh, these nuggets about narcissism and to really commend you um, for helping so many people that a lot of therapists, friends, spouses, etc. tend to shy away from or run away from. Mm, yeah, thank you. Thanks so much, Laura. It's been nice to be with you. You too. So if you found this episode valuable, please share with others who may benefit, as well as uh, check out my website, drlaura.live. I have a monthly e-newsletter full of nuggets and articles and resources about topics at the intersection of work and life. Thank you very much. And we will have another episode with Wendy Beharry in a couple of weeks on navigating narcissism in work and life. So we'll look at more of the life elements and the, um, the way that she navigates the world, um, dealing with narcissists and doing the important work that she does. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us today on Where Work Meets Life. I'm passionate about sharing insights from experts around the world on topics at the intersection of where work meets life. If you found this podcast useful, please share with others who may benefit and engage with us on social media. For more articles, information, and tips, sign up for my monthly newsletter at my website, drlaura.live. This podcast summary contains links to the psychology practice I founded. Work Evolution, Canada Career Counseling, and Synthesis Psychology, as well as my current employer, Humans, a nationwide organizational psychology firm focusing on culture and performance. Stay well.